Greetings, NSA Nation, and welcome to your 2012 December edition of Voices of Experience. I'm Theo Andros, and I'll be your host. We kick off this month's edition of VOE with writer, publisher, and digital media expert Jeff Jarvis, who's also a university professor and the director of the Center for Entrepreneurial Journalism at the City University of New York's Graduate School of Journalism. He is the creator and founding editor of Entertainment Weekly and was an editor and publisher of the New York Daily News. He has an enormous international following, and his blog, buzzmachine.com, is a great place to learn more about him and his ideas. He was a main stage general session presenter at the 2012 NSA annual convention, where he delighted some and, well, annoyed others, arguably one of the more polarizing presenters to grace our stage. Regardless of what you think about him, the guy is wicked smart and one of the foremost bloggers and digital media experts out there. His insights can help you with your digital media strategy, even if you don't have one. Join me now for a conversation with the author of What Would Google Do? and Gutenberg the Geek, Jeff Jarvis. You teach a class on entrepreneurial journalism? At City University of New York, and every year I teach the case of Entertainment Weekly, which was my case. All right, what's the case? The case was that... Technology was changing. Suddenly we had these new things, cable boxes and VCRs. TV Guide was inadequate in its little tiny pages to tell you what was going on. So I saw a need for a magazine and I wrote a memo and said, let's do a magazine. It got rejected immediately at Time Inc. It took six years before it started. And this is this is corporate life. Task forces were, were assigned to try to kill it. And it finally came around. And then it was rather a disaster at the beginning because I think some executives thought it was going to be People Magazine Junior. And it wasn't. It wasn't meant to be. And we had a pretty ugly design, I'll confess. And some other things went on. But the magazine, God bless it, is still going on today. Students, what, what's the message? What are you teaching them about it? That businesses are eternal. That we think the businesses are so different these days because of digital technology, and there are different things you have to know about. But when I started Entertainment Weekly, the, the dynamics of the business, what you had to do in terms of revenue and cost and marketing and understanding your audience and all that was the same. I just wrote an ebook called Gutenberg the Geek and came to believe that Johannes Gutenberg was the original technology entrepreneur. And so I teach that now, too, and say he had to deal with all the same issues that an entrepreneur today has to deal with. He was done in by his capitalization table and his cash flow. He had a lender who uh, called the business on him just as he was ready to make money with the Bible, basically put him out of business, took most of the business, yet he changed the world in incredible ways. And so the dynamics of Gutenberg's business or, or Entertainment Weekly or even Facebook are essentially the same. And if you can figure that out and you got a good idea that people really want and you're solving a problem, you can start a business. Look at our audience, our listeners for this program. They're primarily speakers or communicators or experts, consultants, coaches and such, but the majority make their living based on the spoken word. And there are many different delivery mechanisms for that. You're teaching entrepreneurialism. What lessons would you teach speakers about how to run a better business? What I want to talk about is trying to take back the business of speaking from the, the organizers and the agents. Not that we don't need them, too. That's fine. You don't have to run a business. But if you do see yourself as an independent person who can run a business, then I think that you have more power, more control, and more opportunities. The spoken word is becoming, I think, more important. I told my, my literary agent recently that if I get near a book publisher again to tie me up, because I think the book industry itself is on the decline. What we see is that authors 
find that they have to get out and they have to talk directly to their public and that that becomes much of what they do as a business. Uh, Seth Godin is the one who got me to write a book in the first place saying, you got to write a book and you don't write it for the book, Jarvis. You write it so you get the speaking gig. You write it so you get known and so you get consulting and, and, and talks and things like that. Now, if you do that, then I think that and if you control your own business, then you see new opportunities. There's tremendous opportunities I'm sure many of the NSA members are using when it comes to YouTube and how to get themselves out there and be seen. I'm on a podcast every week called This Week in Google with an amazing guy named Leo Laporte who runs the TWIT, or This Week in Tech, network. There's opportunities to create shows regularly through talking. I think there are opportunities to go talk with your public to create new products, new books, new new ways of thinking. There are ways to create education through speaking. There's just all kinds of opportunities. And if you think of yourself as a business, as a brand, those are kind of hackneyed ways to say it. But if you think that you want to try to find all of your opportunities, then I think you should think of yourself as a business. Your start in all this, you were a writer. First and foremost, you were an old school ink guy. What can you teach speakers about becoming better writers? Ah, interesting. Uh, I, I don't write my talks. In fact, I've gone more and more away from that. Whenever I do think, I've got, oh, I've got a big talk, I better write it out. It sucks, right? It's <laughs> awful because it has no contact. I recently gave up PowerPoint, for which I expect applause from the audience. Jeffrey Gittimer yelled at me, as he does other people, but he yelled at me because my, my slides were too dull. And I thought about it for a while, and I thought, well, I don't want my slides to be the star. I want to be the star. And I, I gave a talk on my new book, Public Parts, and I didn't have the time to do a PowerPoint. So I just did the talk. It was so much better to have direct eye contact with people. I don't think that speaking is necessarily about writing. I think speaking is about having thoughts, having them well-organized, having a logical progression and story and arc that you're going through and telling, being aware of your audience and knowing what it is that they want to hear. And then... To me, my favorite part of speaking is not speaking, it's listening. It's getting out and playing Oprah in the room and having people teach me things. Because I'm always in a room with smarter people. In terms of a speaker becoming a better writer, so much, social media is driven by the written word more than the spoken word. Is that fair to say? Yes, but it's not essays, it's conversation. And I think that when, when blogs came out, people made a mistake and thought that the first in media, they came out and said, oh my God, I've got I've to write a column and this blog thing. I've got to fill this space. And that was a big mistake. The, the first step in blogging was not to write them, but to read them. What are people saying? Get involved in the conversations that are already out there. And then the other important lesson when it came to blogs was the power of the link. And the link is what enables conversations. <clears throat> I started my blog after September 11th, 2001. I was at the World Trade Center on the last train in, which is a whole other story. After that, I wrote my news story about that. And I had a few more things to say the next day. So I thought, oh, I'll blog for a week or two. It took over all available life. It changed my career. It changed my view of media. And what changed it was this. When two guys in L.A. named uh, Ken Lane and Matt Welch saw my blog through a mutual friend, and they wrote about it on their blogs, and they linked to it. And then I wrote about what they said, and I linked back. And that was just a big ding moment for me where I saw that we were in a conversation. It was in different places and different times, but it was a conversation. And so that's what social media is. And that's what I also think that talks ought to be too. The more there are conversations with people in the room who know things, want to know things, want to share things with each other, the more you're a platform for that conversation to occur, the better off you are. So social media and speaking, I don't think are that different. So social media is not about literary quality. It's about point of view. It's about perspective. The way I've been thinking about it lately when it comes to journalism, which is my boring field, is that it's about adding value. You know, I've blathered on for blogs for God knows how many millions of words now. 
and I read a lot of blogs, and I get tired too. Uh, well, I get tired first of journalists putting blogs down, but then I get tired of bloggers not adding any value and just repeating things that are already out there. And I think the journalists have been known for years of taking the story you already know on TV and then just rewriting it to get a, to get a byline, to get something else. So the same is true, I think, in, in social media. Add value. When I teach my journalism students about blogging and social media, what I tell them is to go find a conversation and add journalism to it. Go find somebody who's confused about something, uh, who's wrong about something, correct their mistake, pick up a phone, get an answer they want, add some value to the conversation. And when you do that and link to somebody else, they're going to check their links and they're going to say, oh, Theo linked to me and he had something interesting to say, so I'll link back to Theo. And suddenly someone new has discovered you. That's why you have to think of, of blogging and social media as conversation. But I, I also think that media properly should have been a conversation all these years. It just couldn't be. There was no way to talk back. And now there is. So how can a speaker apply what you teach your journalism students about social media? How could a speaker do something similar? I think there's a lot of things speakers can do. Start here. They can get out there and listen and see what people are talking about. What do they need? What do they know? What do they want to know? How can I add value to that? They can add value straight out in conversations online and test out ideas. When I both my books, I tested out all the ideas in the books online first. And people were very generous with me and added things to my thinking and corrected me and really helped. Then when you do have something to say, you know what you have something to say, then, then and only then, social media is, in fact, a great way to promote yourself. Yes. If that's all you do, it's obnoxious. <laughs> but if you have some value and you come in and say, I'm going to give a talk. Anybody want to come? Here's what we're going to talk about. Uh, what do you think I should talk about? Uh, go watch my video and tell me how to make it better. Ask me questions. Answer my questions. All that kind of interaction, I think, is very possible not only for a journalist but also for a speaker. I was at a meeting a few weeks ago where a consultant came in. And I just really sensed they were showing us the canned PowerPoint stuff. And it peeved the people in the room because it was the same old stuff that was being shown to others and that wasn't being thought through. There was no value added to it. I could, I could go read an article or read a textbook and get the same value. The value of speaking is that you're there in person. The value of social media is that you're making a personal connection. And you can do more than just deliver the same spiel you've always delivered. So I, I think the real lesson for all of us, speakers, media, lots of people, is to be more involved in conversations with people. That concludes part one of the Jarvis interview. Part two can be found on track eight of this edition of VOE. We now go to last year's VOE host and NSA power broker, CSP Brian Walter, to learn more about the Laugh Lab. This is Brian Walter once again sharing a somewhat quirky scientific perspective on laughter, which in reality is a blatant infomercial to trick you into registering immediately for the Laugh Lab in January. And now, the quirky scientific part. Last year, an evolutionary psychologist at Oxford, Professor Robin Dunbar, conducted a series of experiments on the benefits of, you guessed it, laughter. According to the good professor, we are all primates, and laughter is for humans, and I quote, social grooming at a distance. So in essence, the collective bonding that occurs with laughter is the equivalent of picking ticks off each other and eating them. Thanks for that mental image. What he had to say about chemistry in our noggins, though, is much more gratifying. 
When your audience laughs at something you said or showed, it triggers the release of endorphins. Now, these brain chemicals cause them to perceive you as a more effective and better-looking speaker than if they had not just laughed. But that conclusion wasn't enough for Professor Dunbar. He wanted to see if a more powerful laughter benefit could be proved. So in his studies, he tested resistance to pain, both before and after bouts of social laughter. The pain came from a freezing wine sleeve slipped over a forearm, I'm not kidding, and an ever-tightening blood pressure cuff. Now, to test this, study participants watched excerpts of funny videos, neutral videos, or videos meant to promote good feeling, but not laughter. Then they rated how much more they could take of the frozen wine sleeve or boa constrictor-like pressure cuff. The funny videos consisted of The Simpsons and old episodes of Friends. The neutral videos consisted of a golfing program and a documentary on pet training. And the positive but unfunny video was an episode of Planet Earth. Now, the results, when analyzed, came down to this. Laughing in a group appreciably increases pain resistance, whereas simple good feeling in a group setting does not. So as speakers, here is the application. If you are such a bad speaker that your audience is in pain listening to you, by making them laugh, they will be able to endure listening to you longer. Uh, that doesn't seem so good now that I hear myself saying it. Um, let, let's just go back to the endorphins. If you'd like to give your audiences a natural and legal high associated with you, then come to the Laugh Lab, January 3rd through 5th in Las Vegas. Register now at nsaspeaker.org. Now, there's only a limited amount of slots left, so don't wait to register or it could be too late. And then the question would be, will another speaker's audiences get the endorphins that should have been for yours? This is Brian Walter, and I'll see you at the Laugh Lab. <laughs> Thanks, Brian. This just in. Please note that there are less than 40 seats available for the Laugh Lab, and that's no laughing matter. So go to nsaspeaker.org and reserve your seat today. Our next guest is Aaron Saxton, a four-time Emmy-nominated TV producer who has long been on the receiving end of PR pitches, having worked on shows such as The View, Good Morning America, and numerous Barbara Walter specials. This extensive experience gives her an insider's perspective. She knows what resonates with television and radio producers and the best way to pitch a book, a person, or even a product. This expertise helped her business partner and client, Jeff Hazlett, become a go-to media personality and catapulted his book, Running the Gauntlet, to the top of several bestsellers lists. Let's see if she can help you do the same. As a speaker's looking to launch a PR campaign, what's a reasonable expectation or how should a speaker use PR and promotion in their business? Well, you know, a lot of times I think that they're not being mindful of the plan. And I think that a speaker and a company, and this goes for anybody, they need they need a plan. They need to be mindful of the timelines that the media has. They need to be mindful of what they're going to leverage out. In the media, a lot of speakers create books or they'll have a blog. And then they stay like a prisoner inside the confines of, of that those texts, those words. And what I really want to do is give speakers permission just to say, just because you wrote the book doesn't mean you can't talk about other things. And everybody will still introduce you as author of blah, blah, 
blah, blah, or, you know, the blogger of blah, blah, blah. It's okay. If there's breaking news and it's in your genre of expertise and it just isn't in chapter three of your latest book, it's okay. I want everybody to be proactive and reactive in the media. I mean, is media for everybody? I mean, is everybody a good candidate for the media? Everybody's a good candidate for the kind of media they deserve to obtain. What does that mean? Does, okay. It doesn't so make here, any sense to it me. It does. In my, in my crazy blonde <laughs> head, this makes sense. I think that right now, the clients that come across my inbox of my email, let's say back in the days of Oprah, all wanted to be on Oprah. Now they all want to be on Ellen or they all want to be on fill in the blank. The truth of the matter is not everybody's meant for Oprah. Not everybody's meant for CNN. Not everybody's meant for the Home Shopping Network. But everybody thinks because that's the media they love. So everybody has their own versions of what media they think they should be in. And I need everybody to get a reality check. It's like dating, right? So you could be like this crazy, awesome supermodel, guy, girl, doesn't matter. Or you could be somebody so inappropriate to date somebody like that intellectually, looks-wise. You're just... You're really talking about it has to be the right fit. It does have to be the right fit because here's the here's the kicker. The audience that you need to attract to buy your book, to go to your seminar, to see you speak, to read your blog, you need to go to the places where they're reading those articles, where they're listening to those podcasts, where they're listening to those radio interviews. So if you're trying to get on a TV show that isn't part of who you are, definitely not your brand, it's definitely not going to be your audience. So you're not going to earn any money, any recognition or business anyway. So I think what you're saying too is that the media is really just a tool that's part of a bigger plan that you mentioned earlier and then making sure that you have a right fit that you're in front of people who could potentially buy from you or who your audience is. Once you've identified a good fit, let's say Ellen is the good fit. Once you've identified that and you're successful in, in landing that, what is your advice for them to do once they're on that show or in that article or in that interview? The, the media is the megaphone. What makes you a good fit is your content as, a, as an expert, as a thought leader, as a key opinion leader. So what you need to do is think, what media is out there that has an audience that I can listen to that my content would work for them. Then what I need to do is look at hot topics, look what's out there in the media, and then I need to craft my message and customize it to that particular media outlet. Once that works, which is very difficult, what I've just described doing, by the way, but once that happens and you know you're going to be on, I want everyone to be media trained by a professional, by somebody who used to be in the media. There's so many media trainers out there that haven't known the pressures of being in the media, so you don't know that gut-wrenching feeling of going to sleep the night before knowing that you don't really have a great speaker on the next day or an expert and you need that expert to hit six topics and you know six must-dos before supper or whatever it is and you need that person to ramble that off in 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 seven seconds or something silly like that without media training you're like you're fish out of water so that's the first thing the other thing is I really would love everything everybody to have good manners when they go to the media please do not bring like your Puff Daddy Honorage. There's no reason why you and 12 of your closest friends and family need to go to any kind of media interview. Maybe bring one person and your spouse should not be that person. That's ridiculous. This is business. Bring your publicist or bring somebody that's going to be real with you, not somebody that's going to be like, oh, you look great. No, you don't. You have stuff in your teeth. Like, no, let's go. Come on. We got to make some money from this or we need to move up the book sales or you know what I'm saying? Like we need to get more bookings out of this booking. The media, you, you want to let Leverage your appearances in the media to get better media. 
What do you wish speakers understood about PR in terms of their expectations? What are reasonable? It seems like a lot of speakers who've invested in a PR company, you hear so many stories that, oh, it was a waste of money, didn't do anything. What is a reasonable expectation for a PR campaign? You know, I just think that having a realistic conversation with your publicist, your PR team prior to the start and remembering that conversation. Unfortunately, there's a lot of clients out there that don't recall the, well, this may not work or there's no guarantee conversation. For my team, we always put every in writing. What I've noticed is for the disconnect sometimes with PR agencies and their clients are, the agency will think it's a really great campaign. And the client's like, well, I don't know. It wasn't, you know, and I think PR is a lot of money. So you want to be psyched that your clients are psyched. But more importantly, too, you want to, you want to know that your client understands the work that it goes in to getting those bookings for you. There's so many clients out there that'll say, well, I only want to do national TV. But like their brand is so not ready for national TV. So then we just won't sign them on as clients. Or they got national TV 20 years ago and think they're still going to be in national TV now and are downright bummed if they don't get certain things that they're looking for. And I totally get that. I would be bummed too. But the reality is every year with the new television season coming in, the landscape of what the audience is looking for changes. And what everybody needs to know about the media is the media is a business. They want ratings. They want better sponsors. They want better advertisers. They want to go for that sensationalistic type of stuff, just like we all do. They know what sells. So they're going to book those people just because you're curing some sort of great thing here. And that doesn't fit with the audience of the show or the magazine that you think you need to be in isn't the PR's problem. It's your problem because you're not back to our right relationship. Pitching a story Mm -hmm. is very similar to pitching a speech. How do you pitch? Tell us how you pitch. Everyone in my agency, there's 28 of us. So everyone in our agency has a different type of personality. So I'm a little more on the just outgoing kind of just call you up and just just start talking and relating. So for me, I automatically try to get a sense of that shortest route of my client that we're talking about to that person that's on the other line, other end of the phone. So I just try to connect them through something. I don't know. So I just go about it, just calling them up and calling. And right, before you discussing. make that call, but how do you prepare for that call? We definitely do the research. I mean, we have people fill out a media relations audit. Right? It's a series of questions, and we really then have a big segment idea brainstorm, and we try to slice and dice and come up with the angles. Like we never throw it on the wall and see what sticks. We pitch short sound bites now because you want to do everything from a smartphone right you know our friends in the media are just on subways and planes and trains and so you're actually pitching via text yeah yeah you got to know like they're not always going to take your call anymore right so i'll pitch in a text i'll tweet it out that's how we get our bookings my gosh you've got to get so succinct 140 characters so how do you pitch in a a tweet you just try to you know you'll just try to um, give me an example mm, pitch me something well i'm just trying to think if i can visualize 140 in my head but we did it for jeff hazlip's book running the gauntlet the whole time let's talk about that so we would just say hazlet's running the gauntlet or hazlet's calling out the ceo of netflix three what three things he should have done better i'll get a call in a second on that I did get a call in a second on that for Cavuto. And then they had him back twice just to talk about it because then everything he said he should have done, the CEO did then. And then, you know, Neil and Jeff were on the same page. So they went on and, you know, pretty much gloated about it. So you pitched in a tweet. Yes. You got a call back 
and got it. We pitched in a tweet. We pitched in an email form where I just, I'll just pitch in subject lines now. You know, and then in the body of the email will still be this, the full text if anybody wants to read more. But yeah, PR people, you, they have to really think how the media thinks. So, What advice would you give to a speaker doing their own PR? It's hard. I really think that I want everybody, I want them to do something for themselves with PR every day. But I just think it's, it's difficult to, as an entrepreneur, to run a company, run the books, pay your bills, build content, build intellectual property, protect intellectual property, and then brag about it to the media in hopes that then you get a booking, then prepare for the booking. So while you're doing all of that, there's like 30 more outlets that didn't take your call the day before or even the week before. Every week, let's say, if not every day, something needs to be done to build your platform for PR, for social media, five times a day. It's a lot. It seems like PR is an element of a, of a larger plan. Once you get the exposure, how do you leverage that into additional exposure? Well, then now we're talking marketing. All right. I feel like marketing's our big sister or our mom, and then you have advertising, PR, and social media, and ways to get out your message. You know, so mom's like, you need to tell everybody about this, and here's how we're going to do it. Right. So social media runs off. They know what they need to do. PR runs off. They know what they need to do in advertising. They know, you know, so social media is more frequent. PR is third-party endorsements and advertising you pay for. And everyone knows that we're in the first person talking about how great we are. PR is third person and social media could be building relationships and that's building up your community in a little different way. So it's a little more cloaked, but sometimes it's first and third person. That's how I think of it. A lot of clients will not do every media out there. Should they? Absolutely. They should do every media out there? I agree. I think so. So here's the thing. We have some clients and some people that I know in the media that they'll only do certain media interviews. Why? Well, because they think their brand might be above a certain like blog talk radio or whatever. Is it above it or is it they don't see it as being a good fit? Like some people won't do O'Reilly because they don't like O'Reilly. I'm talking about the people that think they're above that. Okay. And I think, when did we get so confident that we're going to not do interviews? But is it confidence or is it being Mm. selective with your time? The game is to do as much interviews, as much media as possible. And here's why. Why? Because when Mama Bear talks about the marketing and you need new content every day, five times a day to tweet out or post on Facebook on social media, try, seriously, I want to challenge everybody. For the next four months, five months, come up with something that you can do to promote a book or a platform five times a day and still give value. Like, we're not narcissistic. Jeff's really clear on you have to give value. So if we're not teaching somebody something or if we're not... Five times a day? Five times a day. One of those could be, I just did blog talk radio. And then there could be one person out there, everybody, that could be that producer of the blah, blah, blah show. Or So you're saying they should do as much media as possible? I think they should. Do you ever say no to any media? Yes, of course, if it's not right, or if it will be a well, it seems tumultuous. Like a contradiction to what you just said. What, what if you- it's not a good fit, I won't do it. So yeah, you gotta say no to radio, no to TV, no to what. Like, I'm not saying don't say yes to everybody. I mean, I don't want you to be like. I'm so confused. Why? Because I thought you just a minute ago told me to say yes to all media. Not if it's a right relationship. If it's a right relationship, say yes. But what I'm telling you is I have people that say, "Mm, I don't think they have enough circulation. 
Oh, I don't think they have enough listeners. That's a listeners. totally different thing. So right. you're saying don't say no based on the size. Right. Say no based on the fit. I think being in the media is all about dating. There are so many parallels between falling in love and getting the media to fall in love with you. Tell me three of them. Well, you need to look good. You need to sound good. You need to position yourself properly. And you need to always make sure that they never fall in love out of love with you. How do you do that? You just always have to feed the relationship. How? By proactively giving people what they need. What do they need? Well, it depends on the medium you're talking to. Radio. Right? So radio, you're always looking for good talkers, good sound bites. So if I was a PR person for you, or if we're going to constantly be having these kind of moments on radio together, then I'll probably ping you once a week with like three different topics that we could discuss. I will never get out of your mind now because this is now a relationship. Get it? Got it. Good. Thank you, Aaron. And now a word about this year's How and Now Business Retreat, formerly known as the Winter Conference. Here's you. Hey. And here's that part of your speaker brain that decides things. Eh, maybe. Things like whether you're coming to NSA's How and Now Weekend, a business retreat for people who want to speak more or speak better. What? So what if that part of your brain found out that instead of attending a completely unrelated mishmash of session topics, you'd commit the whole weekend to one focus, marketing or delivery? Oh. And what if that part of your brain found out that top marketing and delivery experts were going to skip the intro, the build-up, and the why this is so important time-sucking content you loathe, and instead jump directly to the how content you love? Hmm. What if that part of your brain found out you'd get in-depth how-to insights and tangible tools, and instead of reams of indecipherable notes, you'd start to implement takeaways now, in the moment, in small groups, while receiving one-on-one -on -one feedback and coaching? Whoa. What if that part of your brain found out that instead of getting buyer's remorse, you'd automatically get all of the session audio recordings, including the focus area you didn't choose? Nice. And what if that part of your brain told us to stop irritating you with what-if statements and instead state the when and where of how and now? Come on. Well, okay. The How and Now Weekend, a business retreat for people who want to speak more or speak better, is February 22nd through 24th, 2013 at the San Francisco Airport Marriott Waterfront. Register at nsaspeaker.org. Once again, here's you. Hey. And here's that part of your speaker brain that decides things. Uh. And it's already decided, right? Uh. Yeah. This next segment started out as a conversation about back-of-the-room sales, but quickly turned to all things book-related, which is to be expected when you sit down with a guy who's written over 130 books. CSP Dan Pointer is one of NSA's most prolific authors, and whether you have written a book or not, he has something of value to share. Dan? It was Charlie Tremendous Jones who said years ago that you have to earn your money in the front of the room and the back of the room. Charlie invented back-of-the-room sales, and he was so right. The challenge is when you're traveling, carrying all of those products, books and other things, but especially books. Books are high weight and high volume. And when you're traveling internationally, it's very, very difficult. And of course, shipping is very, very expensive. So what do you do? Well, I was speaking in South Africa a number of years ago, and my contact down there, Val Waldeck, said, did you bring any books? And I said, oh, Val, they're much too heavy and take up too much space in the luggage, and I've got several different titles, and I just don't have space for it. She said put them on a CD and PDF. Oh. I went home, I put all of them on CD and in PDF, reproduced the CDs, 
all of the books together ran about $130 worth, so I'd price them in local currency at somewhere under $100. Did very nicely on it. As a matter of fact, I was back in South Africa and complaining, <laughs> relaying to Val about carrying all these things down, and she said, I can make them down here. I'll pay you a commission. Well, think about it. She not only makes them for me, I still get paid, but then she has them on her website all year long. <laughs> She's selling them all the time, so I've got a dealer in South Africa. There are a lot of ways to sell product in other countries, and putting all of your books on CD makes a whole lot of sense. They're easy to carry. They're easy to store. You'll move a bunch of them, and it really makes it worth it. So you're making money in the front of the room and the back of the room. So, Dan, you're putting your entire book on a, in PDF form on a CD. That's correct. What is the difference between a, an interactive ebook versus a PDF book? The PDF is really the first position, and then you can add to it. And then you, you can add, uh, make it interactive. You can add video to it. You can add animations to it. You can add sound to it, and it kind of builds. It's sort of like PowerPoint, where you start with basic PowerPoint, a few words and a few bullet points, and then you say, gee, PowerPoint is just like Microsoft Word. You know, insert picture. I can do that. Well, if you can insert a picture, you can insert a video. You can insert an audio. You can insert an animation. It just keeps on building. Basically, what people want to start with is just the book itself in a PDF format that they can play on their computer. Now, do you only sell your books on CDs in other countries, or do you do that here in the U.S. as well? No, only in the other countries. Usually in the U.S., I ship UPS, and uh, when I get to the hotel, I pick them up. I always undership. That way you have books that are showing, and uh, people know that they can buy the books on site, and then when you run out, you take the orders and ship them when you get home. When you sell the books on CD in other countries, do you, are you selling less books than you would sell if you actually had the books there? No, actually, you're selling more. You might have six or eight books on that CD. So normally, people might buy two or three of them, but since all eight are on the CD, they buy all eight. So then why sell books at all in the U.S.? Why not sell the CDs? Well, you, you could, but the, the books, the printed books, have a higher perceived value. It's just been my experience that if you have the books on site, people are more likely to purchase them. They want to pick them up. They want to take them home. Ten years ago, Raleigh Pinsky down in Phoenix said, don't sell your books back in the room. Put them up front. Over to one side of you on the stage, you have all of your books piled up. Then, a number of years ago, I came up with some order blanks, and I put those out in front of everybody. I, I'm a very, very soft sell on the books. They can fill out the form, and during the break or when it's over, they can come up and they put it down and they take the books. So it's self-serve, and it's honor system. And people say, well, how many books do you lose? Well, you don't. People don't steal books. And if you lost one, what's the big deal? You lost a couple of dollars? I mean, that person's got a personal problem. Number one, you want to sell books back of the room, but what's better is selling them front of the room, and what beats both of those is if you can have the room set up classroom style, and you can put a stack of books, different titles, between each person because people can multitask. They can look at your book and listen to you at the same time. So you actually spread your books throughout the audience exactly. without having sold them yet. Oh, yes, and, you, and that really works. And they fill out the form, cash, check, credit card. I even have a fold mark in the center of the piece of paper, the 8 by 11 sheet, so they can fold it there. They bring it up, drop it, You've, and it works. How many books have you written? 131. So how in the world do you decide which books to sell to these different audiences? Well, it depends on the audience. You want to take just the books that are going to fit them. Are they in the the writing stage, the production stage, or the promotion stage on books on writing and promotion. If I'm speaking to a parachute audience or an aviation audience, then I've got my parachute books. And so it just depends on the audience. You want to take what's going to move with that audience. Dan, what's your next book? I'm trying not to write books, but I want to tell you, today you write your book, 
but you do it in ebook format, which is far simpler, no layout, very, very easy. You finish six o'clock at night, you upload it to Smashwords, you upload it to Kindle, and by tomorrow morning, you got a book for sale. Then you watch your sales there, and if you're doing well, then you can go ahead and set the type and do a printed book. Many people uh, want to sell out to a large New York publisher. This is not a good idea because they're not going to be in business very long. But if you really want to, the best way is to publish yourself first and then send printed books to literary agents and to publishers who have a track record with your kind of book. So if you've got a business book, you send to somebody who's got a lot of business books, and most NSA people are doing business books. That way, you've got it covered. Now, if they get back to you with a good offer, you can run the numbers. You might sell out. And if they don't get back to you, it doesn't matter. Because what matters to a, a speaker is to get that book out. And what matters to your audience is to get your material. And what matters to the book is to see the light of day. You publish yourself first as an ebook, then go into a p-book, and then let the literary agents and publishers know about it. But meanwhile, you've got a product. It takes a large New York publisher 18 months to take your book when they accept the manuscript until they run it through the whole process and get it into print. 18 months is a long time for a speaker. I mean, you need to get the word out because that's gonna bring in more speaking. Uh, that's your new business card, it's the entree. And you wanna get paid and 18 months is just unacceptable. And in today's world, it just doesn't work. As I said, you finish your book at six o'clock at night, you upload it to Smashwords and Kindle, you're published by tomorrow morning. That's the way life should be. From concept to completion, what is the average length of time it takes you to write a book? Well, I do it a lot faster now. It used to take me a good 30 days, day and night. But in the last five weeks, I've done four books. You've written four, four books, books in five weeks. Now, two of those were brand new, and two of them were updates of previous works. And the updates would take three to four days, and the brand new books would take about a week each. You write a book in a week. And because it's so much faster and easier today. How do you do it? <laughs> okay, you gather all your materials. Now, speakers, you have material. You can record your speeches. You can have that transcribed. Cut it up with scissors, divide it into piles. You can take your hand out. Then you do your research. The most important research you can do on your book is Google Alerts. You just go in and put all your keywords in there. And it's a clipping service. It's free. You can't beat that. And every day, all of these pieces of information on your subject are coming in and you're pulling stuff off the internet that you didn't even know was there and it's all brand new it's up-to-date information and so you build your book you put all that information into piles you don't start with chapter one you start in the middle you say oh chapter six that's really interesting i'll do chapter six hey you get that into the computer then you look around for the next pile of paper that's the shortest easiest or the most fun and you get that into the computer always write the first chapter last first chapter tends to be an introduction to the book and you don't know where you're going yet because as you write your book and you learn so much you curve off and the book gets even better it's and it ends up not exactly what you had planned or what you had in mind so write the first chapter last you see a lot of people start off with the first chapter then they try to clean it up then they warm it over then they they never get to chapter two speakers if you have a story write it down you'll figure out where to put it later your book grows with you. It's always a work in progress. When you come back from a speech, you add a few things to your notes as you're going to improve the speech next time. Well, you can add a few things to your manuscript. It's a growing work. It's always growing along with the speech, getting better and better and better. Every couple of years, you think, well, I think that's maybe a second edition. We'll bring it out in a second edition. And that way, your book is always up to date with the speech. You're not 
giving today's information with the speech and saying, well, the book is a little out of date, but, because <laughs> it isn't, it's right up there. And with the ebook, it's even better because you don't have any stock in the garage. So you can update that and uh, upload it and it's right up to date. Dan, let's talk about your process. How long, when you sit to write, how long do you write at a stretch? I like to write when, whenever it strikes me, and I like to write straight through. So we can't always do that. We have to go give a speech. We have to, have to do some travel and so on. But the best way to me is to sit down and go around 24 hours a day, you know, eat when I'm hungry, sleep for a couple of hours, get up and keep going on, because you keep the whole project in your mind. You know, gee, I think that was back on page 38 someplace. Well, you know exactly where everything is because you haven't been distracted and you're focused right there on that. Somebody says, how long did it take you to write that book? It took your whole life. Mm. How long did it take you to give that speech? It took your whole life. I mean, you didn't just get born yesterday and then suddenly you were an expert on your subject. What were the last two books you wrote? One is called Books. That wasn't taken. I went to Amazon, and, and the word books was not taken as a title. And it's uh, tips, stories, and techniques for writing, publishing, and promoting. And the other one that was just amazing, it's called Writing Your Book. There has never been a book with that title, Writing Your Book. So this is stimulating. You go to Amazon, and you type in some words to see what pops up. If there was a book with the same title from 10 years ago and it's out of print, that's fine. There won't be any confusion there. And of course, the subtitle will distinguish one book from another. So I have eight books at home with the title Getting Published. All eight of them are titled Getting Published, but they have different subtitles, and they're different books. They cover different areas of being published. So you've written eight books called Getting Published? No, no, I haven't. Oh. No, no, I just say I have eight at home that on my shelves. All from that, different authors? Yes. Okay. Yeah, they're completely different. And everything you write has something to do with, with publishing books or with aviation? Right. I've, I've done a lot of different books over the years. I wrote the first book on hang gliding, which made so much money, I moved back to California, bought a house on a hill overlooking the ocean. I love this business. And I did a circular book on Frisbee play. comes packed inside a 119 Frisbee disc. I wrote the first book on word processors. I wrote a computer book. A lot of the books on writing and publishing. And What's your most successful book you ever wrote? Well, I'm best known for the self-publishing manual, How to Write, Print, and Sell Your Own Book, which is in the 16th revised edition since 1979, uh, 24 printings. And very important to keep current in your field, whether you're a speaker, a publisher, a writer, author, or both. Keep current and keep adding to it. Keep improving your material, both your spoken material and your written material. They should both keep on growing. And uh, one leads to the others because you sell the books to the, to the people you're speaking to and you're speaking on that subject and the books are bringing in more speaking and speaking is selling more books. It's very important to have a very what, symbiotic relationship between the products. Are all your books self-published? No, no. I have sold books to New York publishers to, of course, internationally. I've sold a lot to uh, foreign countries for translation into other languages. I have published other people and I've self-published. So I'm one of the few people who's been on all three sides of the desk. Most people have a single publishing experience and I'll tell you all about it, <laughs> especially if they're speakers. But, <laughs> what was the first uh, book you ever wrote? Well, it was a very modest lesson book for people who wanted to be parachute instructor examiners. Then the second big book was the Parachute Manual. That was 600 pages, eight and a half by 11, 2,000 illustrations, uh, technical treatise on aerodynamic decelerators. That was, you know, a very successful book. And Were you an aeronautical engineer by training? Did you? No, I was a parachute designer, though. All right. And this is one of the secrets, is nobody wants a general book today. They want something. When somebody buys nonfiction, and most NSA people are doing nonfiction, they, do, they buy that to learn something or solve a problem. And they look at this book and they say, is this going to answer my question? 
They don't look to see who the publisher is. Nobody cares about that. Why do people buy books? To learn something or solve a problem. That's why they buy a nonfiction book. They buy fiction to be entertained. There's a huge difference between fiction and nonfiction. They want to know, is this going to answer my question? Well, I started off with books for the parachute field. Now, that's a pretty small field. And then I sold the first one to people who wanted to be parachute instructor examiners. Not jump masters, not instructors, but the pinnacle, instructor examiners. That's a small group. The next group was aimed at parachute manufacturers, parachute designers, and parachute technicians. I mean, again, pretty small group. But people want the expert in the field. And they don't want somebody who has broad general knowledge about this, that, or the other thing. And when they're hiring a speaker, they're looking for the person who wrote the book, and they're looking for the person who has that specific information. And many people try to speak on many different subjects, or they want to hit it really broad because they don't want to leave anybody out. But you don't get hired because people want the expert, and that means narrowing down your subject. Thank you, Dan. Amazing. I don't think I could even name 131 books, let alone write that many, though you sure do make it sound easy. Speaking of easy, there's seemingly nothing easy about speaking to foreign audiences, but our next guest sure does have some ideas that might help. Join me now as we go to Johannesburg, South Africa to meet with CSP Justin Cohen and hear his take on the power of story and on customizing for a global audience. So Justin, what's your story? <laughs> My favorite question. I guess uh, my story ultimately is what all our stories should be, which is our client's story, right? What is their story? And in the work that I do on story, it's about figuring out what their story is and helping them to tell their story. I mean, what we do as speakers, right, is we do a lot of data downloading. You know, we go out there and we do our presentation. And I do do that. And it's great to go out there and do the show and inspire and uplift and educate. But it's also pretty cool to take time to actually let people tell their story. Who are they? What are they about? And so what we might do is do a workshop and everybody has to share a story about how they or somebody else has delighted a customer, solved a problem, made a breakthrough. And what you're getting is these incredible examples of success that inspire people to emulate and that's, you know, if you don't like the word story, case study, you know, let's find out what's working. And also, if it's a failure story, then we at least find out what not to do. And so we take a conference called the whole conference, What's Your Story? And, and everybody gets engaged. And we've seen with the brain that when you get a presentation, the brain just isn't as active as when people are sharing their own stories. How have you built your brand or your business in your, you're from? From South Africa. Okay. Theo, you know, I started off with my passion. I didn't even know this thing called a speaking industry existed. I studied psychology. Uh, it changed my life. I, I was that kid. You know, I don't know if you know those kids who didn't have to work hard and got an A+. Plus. I was the kid who had to work really hard for my D-. And so growing up was, was always a feeling like kind of clawing my way on and never really thriving at anything. And studying psychology totally changed all that because I realized that there were, in fact, ways to be more than you thought you could be. And what I really wanted to do without knowing that a speaking industry existed was take this information, never wanted to be a psychologist, but take the information, make it accessible, make it accessible and get it out to, the, to people. And I started writing a book. And as I wrote that book, I discovered that there was this speaker circuit and you could actually go out there and share your message. What was the book you wrote? The book was called Create Yourself. And it was really a self-help book. I didn't even know that term self-help. I was coming out of the psychology and I just wanted to, to strip it of all the jargon and, and just make it accessible. I was very fortunate at the time I got to host my own television 
television show in South Africa called Invent Yourself. And I got to interview personal development experts on success, people like Dr. John Maxwell. I had the great honor of interviewing. And, and so that really immersed me in the field. And I got to find out what people were doing, how they were doing it. And I guess do what you're doing right now, which is to talk to people, uh, engage with them. And, well, that's the best way to learn. So how did it lead to creating a speaking business for you? Well, Hmm, let's take it back a step. So at the time, I was working with a, a TV production company in, in South Africa called Summit, which is our big business channel. And having written this book, I discovered there was the speaking circuit. And so what I did is I pitched to the producers. I said, why don't we do a documentary on the speaking industry? It has this incredible industry. People are getting paid obscene amounts of money for an hour of their time. You know, like, that's pretty interesting from a business point of view. And he said, cool, let's, let's do it. So we went and created a, a 15-minute documentary on the speaking industry. And let me tell you, that was a great way for me. And in fact, my first presentation was I, I, I was talking to clients who had booked a speaker who we were focused on for the documentary and at the end of it he said so uh, you know we are always looking for speakers Justin you, can you recommend anyone else and I said yeah sure me <laughs> so I said okay great he said uh, you know I said, I said give me a date he said well you know we could actually do something next week because we have something every month for our people I said well you know next week um, I think I'm busy how about the month after you know and so what I did is I took the book the content from the book and I just think a great way to be a good speaker is to be a good writer I know it's not everybody's method but it's mine uh, and I took the key messages from that book and I constructed this presentation and went out there and did my first one which felt a little bit like tightrope walking but it worked it was the thrill of my life it really was the thrill of my life I mean I know at NSA we call this the privilege of the platform and boy when I got back from Thailand after a four-week holiday a year ago my first gig was on the 3rd of January which is unusual uh, for Virgin in uh, in in Durban in, in South Africa and, and I just finished this three-week holiday in Thailand and did that session and I came and I went you know a little bit scary. The most fun that I've had in the past three weeks is today. You know, more than those the beaches on Thailand, which were fun, and the discos, which were fun, just getting out there and sharing a message that you are passionate about. Few things beat that. So... Now, I understand you've made, you're expanding beyond South Africa now. Is this... Well, you know, the good old US of A. I, you know, this country gave birth to... The motivational speaker. This country gave birth to the concept of personal development. You know, I know that you know one of your slogans in, in, in America is liberty or death, but I think of it as liberty to be more than you think you are. And, and for me, that's the great message of this country. And when I arrived here 16 years ago, before I got into speaking, I arrived in New York and it just blew me away and it became a dream. That became my dream to get back here and have the opportunity to to work here, to live here, and I started a process, a green card application process a couple of years ago, and yeah, the green cards come through, and it's a little daunting because you build this career over the past, you know, 12, 13 years in, in a country, and and now I'm, I, I guess I'm doing what I tell, you know, my audience to do is, you know, wh- what do you want? Uh, go make it happen. And so, so what, what ad- I'm doing. what advice would you have for our listeners, for speakers who want to do work in other countries? Well... You know, I think there's the perennials about, you know, the culture and so on. Although I must tell you this. One thing I've found from working in Zimbabwe to Iran to London to the Ukraine is that actually people, and I know there are going to be people who disagree with me on this, but I don't think people are as different as we think. And yes, there's cultural sensitivities. and there's, But you know what? There's, we've got 11 languages in South Africa. So talk about cultural diversity. I mean, we, and, and uh, you know, 
I, I, we speak across the board to people from all those different cultures. And what I find is that people ultimately are looking for the same things. I mean, they're looking to be more. They're looking to raise their happiness, their performance, uh, to be the best that they can be. I, it might sound a little corny, but that's what we want, wherever you are. And so whether it's you know, rural shopkeepers in KwaZulu-Natal or, or, or businessmen in London, or quite frankly, I actually think it's the same thing. I think it comes back to, to you know, what is that one thing you want them to know or do differently after that presentation? What is that one thing that you're absolutely passionate about? And uh, yeah, you can certainly, br- look, you want to personalize it to a degree. If I go to Iran, I'm going to actually bring, you know, I've, I've quoted from, from the Quran you know, in Iran, uh, which is quite something for a Jew boy, you know, <laughs> like me to do. Um, but that's, that's and, but what I'm quoting, when I quote the prophet, I'm, I'm quoting something that resonates with the material. Because the truth is, what we speak about, you'll find it in different cultures, religions, you'll find it all over, right? So, so you just want to show that you've taken the time, I think, you've taken the time to actually figure out, uh, you know, who these people are, what, with some of those sort of cultural uh, aspects that, that, that show that you've that you're not just rocking up to do a canned presentation. I so, guess. Justin, what's another example of you customizing to a foreign culture, foreign audience? Well, hmm, I I think a lot of it has to do with talking to to the clients beforehand. I, I would really, I, I want to customize to the company. <laughs> you know, I want to com- cu- customize to the group. Because to come out with a culture, sometimes I've seen this in, in South Africa where a foreign speaker will come out and it's, it's, it's sweet and perhaps even cute for them to sort of say something in a language, which is, it's kind of cool, but I would expect more than that. And I think that more is, you know, if I can come to America and, you know, you know, quote the Star Spangled Banner, let's be honest, is that really going to impress you? I mean, I guess if I directly connected to my message, but you might go, okay, the guy's trying here, you know, but I think you'd be more impressed if I really had taken the time to figure out what your group was about, what your objectives were, and and really made that connection to you who are. Because I, th- I think we sometimes overestimate countries as being the key thing like what is it about this country you know how diverse america is i mean you guys yeah you call yourselves the melting pot but within that pot you know there's a few things that haven't you know it's 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 coming together it's a bit more like a a a stew pot you know it's it's all in the pot but it's not always melted together and that's good that's part of what's so great about being here um but the point is that i think to just go with a cultural reference for the sake of it you know i I would rather go for an organizational reference for a group reference for something that's really personal to that particular audience thank you justin and thank you also to nsa past president and csp scott friedman who introduced me to justin scott friedman has been one of nsa's greatest global ambassadors and has done more to spread the spirit of Cavett around the world than just about anyone. Perhaps we'll talk more about Scott's contributions to NSA in a future edition of VOE. We now continue our conversation with Jeff Jarvis. I think you've blogged about this. I think I recall reading that you're a big Howard Stern fan. Mm-hmm. Why? I wasn't at first. Right? I made the same assumption about Howard Stern that everybody else makes. And then when I was TV critic at TV God, I decided to review his TV show. And as a result, I watched his or I listened to his radio show for a week. And I had an epiphany about Howard that he is best taken in large doses. That if all you hear is the occasional fart joke, then you think, ah, that's silly. But when you listen to him at length, you find somebody who's charming and smart and really quite amazing. And he is greater than the sum of his farts. And I think America's discovering that right now on America's Got Talent. He's done a great job, and I think he's proving to people that he can be a real person 
and that he's reasonable and smart and caring. And uh, I think he's quite amazing. And I've, I've called into a show about things that are very boring, things like First Amendment issues and my prostate cancer and other things. But he's, he's really an amazing, gracious person. And I learned from him. Have you called in to the show as a fan or do you have a relationship with him? As a fan, pretty much, yeah. But, you know, I, I care about the First Amendment, so I care about protecting speech, including dirty words that I'm not allowed to say at NSA. <laughs> and, and I think the FCC and government should not be involved in our speech. So that's really part of how I continued the relationship with the show was doing research and, and, and I did a Freedom of Information Act request to the FCC and I called in about that and that kind of stuff. And then I'll just call in sometimes just to join on the show because you get to know Howard and, and luckily they gave me the VIP number so I can get through. Do you talk about him with your students at all? Yeah. It yeah. seems like he would be, he's such a great example for an artist or a speaker of someone who knew who he was and he stayed true to it. In his movie and his book, public parts. I'm, I'm sorry, private parts. My, I, my, my book's title is an homage to him, so it's public parts, so I get confused. In, in Howard Stern's movie and book, Private Parts, he talks about this epiphany that he had in his career, which was that he had to be real. He had to be willing to talk about anything and be honest about it and be direct with his fans. And that's a lesson not only in his career, I think it's a lesson about all media, including speakers. You look at TV news and it's just so plasticized and so faked and not real and not human and not earnest. And it lacks trust. It lacks life. So Howard Stern's simple revelation was that he had to be real. And that made his career. He's also very, very aware of who he is and what he does. He chooses not to rip off his fans. I would love to have a Howard Stern hat or t-shirt and wear it proudly. He will not make it. He will not sell it. He refuses to. He won't do the Rush Limbaugh chair or any of that. He makes fun of it. He recognizes what he's good at, uh, which he thinks is about everything. And he does recognize what he's bad at. And he's proven to be a genius at owning his brand. But interestingly, he doesn't own his business really, right? He's been an employee of radio companies and now of Sirius. When his contract was up recently, I actually got a call from somebody associated with Stern asking for an introduction to Google. And I made that. And I, I was very excited that perhaps Stern would make the leap to become an internet star and make the internet ready for prime time. He didn't, right? The internet's not quite ready. Trying to get you know, the stern signal from your phone to the car car speakers would be hard. He probably did the right thing, but I'm disappointed that I think that he could have really, truly owned his himself and his business thanks to the internet. The way you have built your social media presence has been total transparency. Mm-hmm. It seems like Howard Stern was Jeff Jarvis before there was a Jeff Jarvis. I learned from Howard Stern. I mean, I, 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 uh, my mother's not crazy about this, but I co-dedicated my uh, book, Public Parts, to him because he taught me those lessons. I don't think my wife was crazy about it either. Um, and he wasn't crazy about having to share the dedication with, with my family. But yeah, he really taught me a lot about being open and, and honest about things. And in fact, I talked about with this with him on the air. Uh, I, I went in there uh, one day for a whole different reason. I ended up in the studio and he said, what's new? And I perhaps stupidly said that I just had a prostate cancer operation. And we started talking about that. And honest to God, because Howard Stern, I hope this is not going to violate any of the NSA rules, but because Howard Stern talks about his penis and doesn't make it into an infantile issue and just talks about it straight out, gave me the courage to do the same. And so when I had prostate cancer and I talked about my malfunctioning organ and for all the world to hear, I got great benefit out of it. I hope I brought a little benefit to others. And I had the courage to do it because there was an example, honest to God, in Howard Stern. It seems that audiences, whether they're reading your blog or watching videos or, or they're starving for authenticity. That the guy up on the stage, the guy, the presenter on the stage is the same off the stage as they are on the stage. So what gets in the way for presenters to be, to be as transparent as you are? 
I think that there is sometimes an assumption that you have to perform. And, and the truth is I perform. Uh, I get animated and because I, I enjoy doing it. I, I get involved. Well, your character is a guy who tells the truth. I mean, your character is someone who lives out loud, who's transparent. I mean, it's, it's almost become your brand. Is there anything that's off limits? Uh, my family, yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm open, but uh, I don't want to drag my family into my glass house. Now, they're necessarily already there to an extent, right? If I tell you about my prostate cancer, you, you know something about my bedroom. If I tell you about that, you know something about my kid's DNA. Right. right? There's, there's necessarily some association there, but I try to not violate their privacy any more than it's already violated. Have you, ever, have you shared anything personally that you wish you hadn't? Yeah, I'm, I'm sure I have. But really not, not anything about myself, more about other people. I think back when I was a columnist on the San Francisco Examiner many, many years ago, and I had a friend, and, and, and we went to a movie, and I, I thought, well, she'd want her name in the column, that she was there, and boy, she got in trouble with her boyfriend. <laughs> we weren't actually dating, right? But you know, I know I know where you were last night, right? So that was a lesson for me very early on, that, that, that all right, if I'm public, and, I, and I, I have experience of being public from having been a journalist and a columnist and so on, so it's easier for me. I'm also a privileged white male in America, a free country. It's a lot easier for me to be public than it is a lot of other people in the world who may live in repressive regimes, who may have secrets that they have to keep. I'm not suggesting that everyone can or must be fully public. What I am saying is that the more we choose to be public, the more we connect with other people, the more benefit we bring to each other, the more generous I think it is. And so I want to live in a society where we feel free to be more public. And that's what I try to live. Some people say, well, you believe in radical transparency. And I say, well, no, I'm still wearing my clothes. And you're welcome. And, and they say, well, you make everything public. Well, no, I don't, because not everything deserves to be public. You, know, you don't care what I had for breakfast this morning. No one should. So I'm not suggesting that we just blather everything about our lives. There's an ethic of privacy that says that, that if... If I tell you something, the responsibility about what to do with that now rests on your shoulders. Whether you tell somebody else or you tell the world through this microphone, that's your responsibility now. I've lost control of it. There's an ethic of privacy. There's also an ethic of publicness. If I know something that could help somebody else and I choose to share it, I think that's a generous act. If I choose not to share it, then one might argue it's selfish. If I know that there's a a rotten restaurant down the block and I've been there and you say you're going there and I don't tell you that man it really sucks that's an ungenerous act right I didn't I didn't share knowledge that I had with you so whether to be private or whether to be public are choices that we make but I think we make them based on going back to this notion of adding value to society social media is such a great tool to, to disseminate information the challenge for many speakers, though, is where is the line between their private life and their public life? How do you, how do you navigate that? I think the first test is relevance, right? If you're going to say something, why would somebody else care? Is this something somebody else would possibly link to? Now, that's easy for me to say because I get people yelling at me all the time because I have more than one interest. So I may blog and tweet and Google Plus about my boring journalism stuff or business stuff. Uh, or events that I go to. Uh, but then I turn around and I may complain about a flight and somebody you know, will yell at me at some point and say, stop complaining. You know, why are you telling us that? And I yell back and I say, don't ever tell me what not to say. Uh, this, is my, this is social space. This is me online. So you can follow me or you can not follow me. When I talked about my prostate cancer, one person accused me of oversharing. That's a really strange concept because what he was really saying was, shut up, Jarvis. I don't want to hear this. But what he really should have done was unfollowed me or defriended me or unlinked me. I wasn't oversharing. He was overlistening. So I think that there is a point where a speaker can say that I want to be me. 
I want to be me online and uh, that they can do whatever they want to do online and they can mix those personas. I think it's okay. I think that ideally you're one person online and that you're not making up one persona for one use and another one for another use. Uh, Now, having said that, sometimes you can also end up kind of polluting one stream with stuff that some people will consider boring. So if you, let's say if you're a business speaker and you really talk a lot online about business, 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 and suddenly out of nowhere you talk about pizza you love, yeah, you might confuse some people. Uh, and they might want to unfollow you as a result. Uh, and, and so maybe you want an account that just deals with business. But I don't think that you want to try to create personas. I think you want to be you. Well, okay, so let's, let me be very clear. You, have, you already have personas. You have a persona of who you are in your family, in your extended family. You have your persona as a speaker or writer. You have there's different, these different areas of your life. And so your cousins or your family may be interested in personal things that your business community is not interested in. It seems very difficult to navigate where to, be put, where to put this stuff. Do you just have multiple accounts, multiple online identities? How do you I navigate? use different tools for different reasons, but I'm pretty much just me. Facebook is more about family and friends. I find it works better for that. Twitter and my blog and Google+, Plus, which I'm liking uh, a good you deal. Are, they, is that still around? Oh, yeah, it's still around. <laughs> i got a million and a half followers. Do you uh, on Google Plus? Google Plus. I mean, they made me a uh, recommended person for a while, uh, so that, that cheats. Helps, yes. uh, but I find that the conversation on Google Plus is very good. Uh, I mix up the professional and the personal. I mix up my lives there. You know, if I want to tell something to my cousins, uh, I'll probably send them an email. And But, you know, again, I'm strange, right? I have surgery and I tell the world about it because I think there's some benefit in doing so. I would say that the lesson of Howard Stern, the lesson of online, is to just try to be authentic, number one, and then try your best to be relevant, number two. It's relevance where you get in trouble. Well, you go back to Howard Stern, and what's really interesting about him is that he wasn't inauthentic on the radio, but he didn't share everything. No. Because the guy who's on America's Got Talent is very different in some respects from the guy that was on the radio. He's always been appropriate to the activity. We all are. It's not as if I'm an entirely different person when I go to the church choir rehearsal than I am when I go to visit Howard Stern but I know what's appropriate for each. Am I being fake in one or the other? Maybe you could accuse me of that, but I, but I don't think so. I think that we, we, we adapt our behavior based on the context that we're in. I think that pe- speakers can do that too, given different audiences and given different audiences online. How has social media changed since you embraced it? Oh, a great deal. Social media for me, the first step was blogging and links in blogging. And I'm still getting my head around the power of links and how important links are to changing our view of our connections to each other. When Twitter came along, I thought it was kind of silly. Uh, it was my son, Jake, who is my, uh, my secret weapon when it comes to these things. He's a developer and a college sophomore. Uh, he said, yeah, you better pay attention to this. And he was right. I remember presenting Twitter to the faculty at my journalism school, and one of the really smart faculty members said, okay, I, I know where you're showing this, us, this to us. It's cute, but what does it have to do with journalism? Well, look what's happened since. Look at the amazing things. You can't always predict. So even the founders of Twitter didn't know what it was going to be. When they started it, originally, Ev Williams, one of the co-founders, told me that they were just going to have one update for you, and it would replace all the time. So what are you doing now? Well, right now I'm talking. Right now I'm having lunch. And that would be it. Thus, you never could have had the structure that came out that allowed these incredible strings of conversation and information. So Twitter has developed a great deal. Facebook really was about friends. It's got a lot more public about it now. I think that Google Plus comes along, and 
Some think that that's Google's effort to be Facebook. I don't. I think that Google and Facebook are trying to get signals about us to better target their services and advertising and content to us. And that's the value of Google+. Plus. That's the value of trying to carry around an Apple phone or a, or a Google phone. So that changes too. I think it's going to change more. I can't predict how. But if you look at Google Glass, the, the thing that has the, the, the little screen and camera right on your, on your eyeglasses that, that is indeed going to come out for developers next year, or you look at Siri for the, the iPhone, you move away from having to have a device you touch and type on to get connected. You can talk. You can just talk. How wonderful for speakers that they can just talk to the whole world of the Internet and they can ask questions of something like Siri or they can share what they're seeing right now and talk about it through a live podcast. It's going to be really quite incredible. I think what we see social media becomes more more fluid and a lot easier. What do you say to a, to a speaker who's done zero social media? Where's a good access point? Good question. The, the, the challenge always is, okay, fine, fine. I started my blog or my Twitter account or whatever. Now, how do I get people to discover me? They won't. The only way you, you get discovered is by joining in conversations. So when you write a blog and you find another conversation and you add value to it on your blog and you link to them, they'll see the link. In Twitter, if you find something that interesting someone said and you retweet it, you spread it around for them and they might notice that, or you carry on their joke or their observation or answer their question on Twitter, then they recognize you. Maybe they're going to follow you. Maybe they're going to spread what you say around. Those are the tools that get you spread around. It's by having conversations. So just publishing, just lecturing will get you nowhere. Thank you, Jeff. Thought-provoking for sure. Speaking of thought-provoking, it wouldn't be VOE if we didn't hear from our NSA president, CSP, Ron Culberson, in a segment he likes to call the president's message, which is fitting because he is our president and a very handsome one at that. Ron? Thanks, Theo. A few years ago, I had the privilege of participating in one of my all-time favorite NSA experiences, the Night of a Thousand Starfish. It was an event developed by Jared Bro, and the goal was to get 12 humorists to tell the starfish story in their own unique way. It was based on the documentary film The Aristocrats, which focused on a long-standing tradition of famous comedians telling their own version of the same dirty joke in the most drawn-out and disgusting way possible. Now, just so you know, we didn't tell the starfish story in a dirty way. Well, at least most of us didn't. Did we, Dale Irvin? <laughs> Actually, Dale's version was pure brilliance. Anyway, the reason this event even happened was that the starfish story has become a cliche in our industry. And as I was thinking about this, I realized that a lot of newer speakers might not know why it's a cliche, nor what the implications are for our respective businesses. So here's my take on it. The starfish story, in case you're not familiar, is about a man walking down a beach covered with starfish. The beach, that is, not the man who sees a young boy throwing starfish back into the water one by one. When asked why he's doing this, the boy explains that he's saving them. When the man then surveys the thousands of starfish on the beach, he suggests that the boy will never make a difference because there are so many. The climactic point of the story is when the boy pauses, tosses another starfish in the ocean, and declares it made a difference to that one. Like you, I'm, I'm getting choked up just retelling this. Anyway, Here's why this story has become somewhat of a cliche for us as speakers. Plain and simply, it's because it's been so overused on conference platforms, in board meetings, at Rotary Clubs, and even in a speech by President Obama shortly after he took office. Now, don't get me wrong. The story and the message are great. Every small act of kindness can make a difference. In fact, I think Mother, Mother Teresa's entire ministry is based on a similar idea. The problem is that if everybody is using the same story, then it does nothing to make any of our messages unique. 
Now, please don't think I'm insinuating that I am the king of uniqueness. I'm not. Vanilla ice cream and I have a lot in common. We're surprisingly normal and bland. Of course, vanilla is the most popular flavor. Just saying. But we really don't want to be vanilla ice cream to our audiences, do we? By using the same material they've heard before, no matter how good it is. So as we head into the holiday season, I'm reminded of something Jeannie Robertson does. In her book, Don't Let the Funny Stuff Get Away, she explains how she uses a system to gather new material all year long. Then she uses the slower month of December to sort through all the material she's gathered and determine what she'll develop as her news stories for the following year. That's such a great reminder how important it is to keep our material fresh. So as you go into the next year and you're developing your business plan, consider how you will replace the starfish stories in your own material with fresh and unique material that will help you avoid being vanilla ice cream to your audiences. If you do, and you use that new material with even one client, I'm sure it will make a difference to that one. (laughs) Sorry. That's what I know. I hope in some way it's helpful. Happy holidays. Well, that wraps up another edition of VOE. Thank you to all of our guests for the insights and ideas. Thanks to Brian Walterton and Terry Langhans for sharing great upcoming NSA events. A special thank you to singer-songwriter Kelly McGrath, who has generously contributed her music to this year's VOE. Check her out at kellymcgrathmusic.com. Thanks, too, to you, the listener, for well, listening. And thanks to all the volunteers who make NSA possible. Be sure to visit the NSA website, nsaspeaker.org, to register for what are all of the upcoming NSA events. Check us out on Facebook and let us know what you're thinking. Thank Thanks, too, for all the wonderful emails and fan mail. Feeling the love, peeps. Feeling the love. Until next time, wishing you every joy and happiness of the upcoming holiday season. Here's hoping 2012 was a great year for you and that 2013 will be an even better one. Peace and love, NSA Nation. Peace and love. And it won't be long before our ship comes in. I said, it won't be long before our ship comes in. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.